Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. My name is Alejo Stark. In this episode, Abolishing Electronic Incarceration, co-producer A. Maria speaks with Maesha Hayes and James Kilgore about the movement to challenge the widening use of electronic monitoring devices, or ankle shackles. Maesha is a national organizer of criminal justice and technology at the Center for Media Justice. James works with the Urbana-Champaign Independent Media Center and is the director of a project called Challenging Incarceration which grows out of his own experiences with electronic monitoring after he was released from prison for his activities with the Sambianese Liberation Army. Maesha and James argue that electronic incarceration, or e-carceration, is not an alternative to imprisonment. Rather, it is a further expansion of the police state into our lives. Before we begin, here's Kay Said with some news you may have missed. On May 11th, the U.S. Bureau of Prisons announced a change in its guidelines rolling back protections for transgender inmates. According to the new guidelines, an imprisoned person's gender identity will no longer be considered in decisions made as to where to confine them. This policy change is part of a larger, sustained attack on trans people by the Trump administration, which has already rolled back protections for trans federal employees and public school students. On May 13th, abolitionist demonstrators descended on the Michigan Department of Corrections director's home to deliver Mother's Day cards to her in protest of draconian changes to the prisoner mail policy. The current policy on prisoner mail prohibits stickers, colored inks, handmade greeting cards, and embellishments. The Michigan DOC claims that the purpose of the new policy is to stop the flow of contraband into its prisons, even though the vast majority of contraband smuggled into prisons are introduced by corrections officers. The action was organized by Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Solidarity, or MAPS. Multiple inmate uprisings were sparked throughout the month of May, including actions at the Crossroads Correctional Center in Missouri and Angola Prison in Louisiana. The insurrection in Missouri, which occurred on May 13th and 14th, saw 209 inmates refuse to return to their cell, demanding the prison address staff shortages and decreased recreation time and programs. On May 8th, prisoners in Angola Prison in Louisiana began a work stoppage at the prison farm in protest of prison slavery and systematic oppression. Angola Prison is named after the slave plantation on which it now sits and has been famously called the Alcatraz of the South. Prison officials there have transferred strike participants to an undisclosed location. According to the UN, 110 Palestinians, including 12 children, have been murdered, and 12,600 Palestinians have been injured by the Israeli state since the beginning of the Great March of Return, which began on March 30th and continued until Nakba Day on May 15th. The Israeli occupying forces used live fire, rubber bullets, and tear gas indiscriminately on massive crowds of peaceful Palestinian protesters who gathered at the border to demand that Palestinian refugees and their descendants be allowed to return home. To add insult to injury, the Trump administration opened the new U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem the day before Nakba Day, adding fuel to the fire of Palestinian resistance. I'm A. Maria, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. On today's show, I'm speaking with Maisha Hayes and James Kilgore about the Challenging Incarceration Project, launched in spring 2018, contest the use of electronic monitoring in the criminal justice and immigration systems. My name is Maisha Hayes, and I am the National Organizer on Criminal Justice and Technology 
at the Center for Media Justice. The Center for Media Justice is a national organizing hub whose mission is to win racial and economic equity in a digital age. We're also the host of the nation's largest racial justice network for media, technology, and culture change, known as the Media Action Grassroots Network. And my work in particular focuses on the way in which technology is expanding the harm caused by policing and the criminal legal system. So my name is James Kilgore. I work out of the Urbana-Champaign Independent Media Center, which is a part of the Magnet Network that Maesia talked about. Uh, I'm also the director of this project called Challenging Incarceration, which grew out of my own experience of being on an electronic monitor for a year post my six and a half years of incarceration. So I believe that electronic monitoring poses some serious threats and concerns to us as a new form of incarceration, moving it from the state facilities in into communities. I've done a lot of work around mass incarceration since I came out of prison in 2009. I wrote a book called Understanding Mass Incarceration, and I've also been active in my own community as a co-director of a re-entry program called First Followers and as part of an anti-jail group called Build Programs, Not Jails. There's a growing movement of people working to undermine the common sense of imprisonment. Why is this an important moment to challenge electronic incarceration as a false solution to other forms of incarceration? Well, at this moment, decarceration is on the agenda and ending cash bail is on the agenda. Part of our concern is if you get people out of jail and prison, what comes next? And as my Asia said, this is not an alternative to incarceration, but rather this is an alternative form of incarceration. And we want to stop this before it really gets a foothold into the movement to change the criminal legal system. Because we think there's a lot of naivete about it. There's a lot of belief that this is an alternative, that it's just a piece of plastic around people's ankles, when actually, as you noted, it's a shackle. It's a connection to carceral control, and it's a way of restricting people's movement, depriving them of their liberty. And in many cases, people are actually paying money to be on this. So it's becoming a monetized form of incarceration where you're paying paying money to be locked up in your own home. We're in this moment right now where there's a lot of activity happening to dramatically reduce our prison and jail populations. Because of all of this activity, a lot of folks are talking about, well, what do we what do we do? How do we get people out of these conditions? And and make no mistake, like none of us are naive about the horrible conditions that people face when they're detained pretrial or when they're incarcerated inside prisons. But the answer cannot be to come up with a new form of incarceration, which is what electronic monitoring does. It merely just shifts the site and cost of incarceration away from jails and prisons into our homes and our communities. So while electronic monitoring has been used in the criminal legal system for the past 30 years, the number of people on these devices have more than doubled in the past decade. And so as James was saying, we're seeing people routinely placed on electronic monitoring as a condition of parole, pretrial release. And this includes also youth that are justice involved and immigrants. And so as we're contending with ways to stop 
this problem of mass incarceration, we have to think really critically about what the alternatives are. And whenever we talk about electronic monitoring, it's really important, particularly in this campaign, to uplift the narrative that it's an alternative form of incarceration, not an alternative to incarceration. And if we want to have conversations about alternatives, then we need to not blindly rely on technology as the solution to these issues. And I think one of the important points that we repeatedly make is in order to have genuine decarceration that's transformative, we need to take the resources that are that have been put into building jails and prisons and into the entire criminal legal apparatus and shift those into the communities that have been hit by mass incarceration and really redistribute and change the ways in which these communities function. And even to just let people out of jails and prisons without providing them with any different context within which to operate is simply to condemn them to unlimited poverty, to living completely at the margins. And the authorities may brag that recidivism rates have fallen, but the quality of life for people is hardly better and sometimes can be even worse than what people face when they're in prison. The two of you, with the panel of women who launched the campaign, have talked about how this brings the unlivability of prisons into our homes and neighborhoods. Can you say more about that? Well, I think people who aren't familiar or who haven't been impacted by electronic monitoring don't realize the draconian regulations that go along with electronic monitoring. There are no rights or entitlements for people who are on electronic monitoring in most cases. It's completely left up to the whim of a probation officer or a parole officer. And most of these officials are schooled in the doctrine of punishment, in the doctrine that has informed mass incarceration and led to the situation that we're in at the moment. So to give them control over your movements, over whether you can participate in family activities, whether you can participate in community activities, whether you can access work, this is ceding that authority back to the state, but bringing it into your living room. And I think a couple of important points are, one is that you're actually bringing the technology of incarceration into the house when you're bringing this box or this technology into people's living space. So a lot of people that have been on a monitor talk about how they feel as if they are inflicting a prison on their family members by bringing this device into the into the house and bringing the rules and regulations of the monitor so that their own family members become like their jailers in the sense that they have to make sure that they're home on time, that they don't leave the house before they're allowed movement and so forth. And there's just this incredible uncertainty about whether or not a small violation is going to send somebody back to prison. I interviewed Monica Cosby, who spent 20 years in prison and 60 days on a monitor when she came out. And what she said was that as a woman who had been in abusive relationships, that being on a monitor was like being in an abusive relationship, that the fear never went away, that even when you left the house, there was a fear that you were going to do something wrong, and then when you came home, you would be punished for it. So she, she you know, drew this analogy between an electronic monitor and being in an abusive relationship. Now, obviously, there are differences, but the point is that people constantly feel fear. I've heard people talk about feeling paralyzed, feeling suffocated when they're on an electronic monitor. Then the other issue is about exclusion zones that are put on people so that people can be prevented from going to certain parts of the city. And this often affects people who have a history of sex offenses or a history of alleged gang involvement. They're barred from going to certain parts of the cities. And this is really the ultimate in kind of urban 
restructuring. It's a form of gentrification where you use technology to keep certain people in certain places and protect other people from the marginalized sectors of the population, particularly people of color. Maisha, you started saying something back there at the beginning? I always, you know, referred to James around that because he's directly impacted by electronic monitoring. And I think that those who have had to experience electronic monitoring should be sharing their stories and sharing their narratives because the details of their stories, I think, really get at the heart of what we're saying about electronic monitoring being a form of incarceration. What really stands out to me is Lavette Mays, who's a volunteer with the Chicago Community Bail Fund. Um, who was one of our panelists for our webinar. And before joining CMJ, I was a organizer on the Closed Rikers campaign. And so whenever I hear horror stories about the conditions inside our jails, it's always really shocking. But what was shocking about her story was the fact that when she was released from um, Cook County, the conditions that she faced on electronic monitoring were so severe It was like her entire home had been subjected to random searches and check-ins that really impacted her family, her movement, everything that James had just said. And so she ended up taking a plea, which is something that we see a lot for people that are detained pre-trial inside of jails. We saw this a lot with Rikers Island, people taking deals because they can't handle the conditions inside of Rikers. And I think that's something of a red flag to us as advocates and organizers who are contending with whether or not technology such as electronic monitoring can be an alternative if we keep seeing the same results happening, right? People still taking deals that they should be fighting, right? Instead of using electronic monitoring, so. It can be unclear where and how ankle shackles are brought into people's lives and court cases these days. Can you talk about where the net is often cast, so to speak, and the fight against widening the net? I think there are four main areas where electronic monitoring is used. First, it's used as a condition of parole when people have done their time already, and yet somehow we want to extend their period of incarceration with technology. So this is a really flagrant violation of what's supposed to be happening in sentencing. Secondly, they're used pre-trial when people are have a case and they're in jail and they are released sometimes they are paying a bond or bail to be released and the monitor becomes a condition of that bail thirdly they're used quite frequently in juvenile justice which is a particularly high growth area that's disproportionately targeting black and brown youth I talked to an 18-year-old man who'd been on electronic monitor seven times already. And I've done quite a number of interviews with youth groups in, in Chicago and in Los Angeles, mainly youth of color. And electronic monitors are just about as common as Jordans in, in, the, in those communities. I mean, it's just everybody's experienced it or knows somebody who has it. Everybody knows the problems that you face in terms of making sure you have, it, have them plugged in or making sure that you're at home on time, all of the rules and regulations. This is part of the culture of the criminalized population in those cities. And the fourth area, which is an extremely high growth area for the use of electronic monitoring, is in immigration. What's happening is that the GEO Group, the world's biggest private prison operator, 
owns the electronic monitoring company that contracts with ICE. And so not only are they building these immigration prisons, but they're also using electronic monitors on the surplus population. And what's really been surprising in the cases that we've heard about is that people are being put on these monitors and then they're just being sent on their way. So they're not really reporting to a parole officer or to a probation officer or to a supervisor as you are in the other situations. They seem to be just wandering around with this device while the company is making money on it and they're sitting there trying to figure out well, what is this thing doing once again there's a culture of fear that goes along with it but it's unclear why this is being used and it's certainly making a lot of money for bi which is the company that's owned by the geo group that sells these things just to add a little bit to how electronic monitoring shows up in immigration ICE launched their alternative to detention program back in, I think, the late 90s with the purpose of expanding release options for undocumented immigrants awaiting their deportation proceedings. And initially, many immigration rights organizations supported this program because, one, the abuse that immigrants had experienced in detention centers were so um, horrific that, of course, alternatives to these detention facilities would be really beneficial. And at the time, these programs programs were very much community-based programs. But after the attacks on September 11th, the political motivation to invest in community-based programs evaporates, and the priority when it comes to immigration becomes exclusively about national security. So by the early 2000s, you see ICE's alternative to detention programs include the most restrictive forms of supervision. And then by 2004, they launched their ISAP Intensive Supervision Appearance Program, which includes this heightened um, reliance on electronic monitoring for immigrants. And, And truthfully, there's not enough information about how they decide who's being placed in electronic monitoring. You know, supposedly it has to do with the category of risk. But I've also spoken to advocates and and lawyers who have said that it could be as simple as there's no room at this detention facility and we're just going to place you on electronic monitor. Immigrants face, you know, very similar violations and abuse while they're on electronic monitoring. I think immigration is an interesting space to uplift because the intention behind alternatives is to not rely on the most restrictive and the most punitive forms of incarceration. But instead, electronic monitoring in this space have actually expanded the state's or the government's ability and capacity to actually detain immigrants. They're not using detention facilities any less now than they were 15, 20 years ago. And now they can detain even more people through the use of electronic monitoring. And just to build off of that, not only is it ICE and BI that's doing this, But we've now seen the rise of private companies like Libre by Nexus, Mm -hmm. which pays the immigration bond for people to be released and then puts them on an electronic monitor and charges them $14 a day, which is not mandated by the court or by ICE, but it's mandated by the company. And the company keeps all that money. It doesn't go toward the person's bond. It's just pure revenue for Libre by Nexus. So there's a number of lawsuits that are being brought against them. And bail bond companies are doing similar things now. I know in New York, I've talked to people who have cases where when they're paying their bail, they're then being put on an electronic monitor by the bail bond company, not ordered by the court. And then they're under some kind of very 
nebulous kind of restrictions or control or surveillance by the bail bond company. So we're seeing a different form of the privatization of electronic monitoring beyond the privatization that takes place through the courts and through the geogroup channels. Despite the fact that electronic monitoring has been around for, as you said, decades now, the combination of expanding technology and political shifts around quote-unquote prison reform has made this a critical moment to highlight incarceration. Can the two of you outline the campaign and talk about the different angles from which people are plugging into this work? Sure. Um, so a major component of this campaign is uh, doing a lot of public education around why the presentation of electronic monitoring as an alternative to incarceration is misguided. Um, and this is a narrative that we need to um, push forward with with our you know, bail reform folks, um, folks that are doing parole, um, immigration, you, you know, juvenile justice, um, because the narrative is, is strong throughout all of those spaces that um, the best alternative that we have at the moment is electronic monitoring. And we really need to do a lot of work to reframe that narrative um, and uplift the, the fact that electronic monitoring is an alternative uh, form of incarceration, not an alternative to incarceration. And that for jurisdictions that are, you know, already using electronic monitoring, let's treat it as a form of incarceration by uplifting a standard of rules and, and, and regulations that respect the rights of those who are on electronic monitoring. Because as James has said before and in, in, in past presentations, even when you're inside, you have rights. They may not be a lot. Um, they may not always be uh, well facilitated, but you have rights. And so people not only electronic monitoring um, should also have rights. But we have to be real about the fact that it's an alternative form of incarceration to get to a conversation around what sort of rights and protections should you have um, when you're on electronic monitoring. Uh, so that's a big part of, of, of this campaign's work and what we are planning to do in the future with our partners and finding, you know, organizing and advocacy interventions where our guidelines and our narrative and the mission of this work um, can have a high impact. We've been referencing a lot of the bail movement that's happening, the bail reform movement that's happening. Um, and so where there's legislation that could potentially um, introduce electronic monitoring, we want to work with our allies and partners on how can we educate their members or their electeds around the harm that electronic monitoring could potentially produce. So I think also we're talking about working in concrete situations where there already is uh, possibilities for legislation that kind of draws on the guidelines that we've drawn up. So for example, in Illinois where I live, there's a bill that's being put forward that would ban the use of electronic monitoring for people on parole, except for where it's required by statute. I mean, we don't like the fact that there are some exceptions, but but it would require a whole lot of other legislation to change that. But we're so we're building toward having a bill put into the legislature in the fall that would get rid of 85% of the people. Uh, who are on monitoring that would get rid of the monitor for them. And we think this is a, a an, imp an important step in, and sets a precedent for other states to get rid of monitors for people on parole because we think that that's really the, the kind of 
the kind of most outrageous use of electronic monitoring when people have, when people are coming home after doing 20 years in prison and then they're getting locked up in their in their own homes and it's and it's costing taxpayers extra money so we have in Illinois for example they spend three and a half million dollars on electronic monitoring of people on parole and yet a story just came out this week that they're spending three hundred dollars three hundred dollars on books for a prison system of about forty five thousand people so it's pretty clear that we that, that, that this provides us with some opportunities to get resources reallocated away from away from locking people up in, in, in their homes. But I think in a, in, a, in a broader sense, and to connect this really to the issue of, of prison abolition, I, I think we have to look at what electronic monitoring is in a broader context. It's not just something that's imposed as a condition of parole or pretrial release, but it's also a form of surveillance that about 70% of the devices that are out there now are GPS enabled. They're, they're tracking location and they're putting that data somewhere on a cloud. There are no regulations in most places about what happens to that data, about who owns it, about what can be done with it. In Germany, for example, they have to delete that tracking data after two months. We've seen contracts in the U.S. that guarantee that the data will be kept for seven years. So this is being now blended in with all the other databases that are on the population that's on electronic monitoring because this is a criminalized population. And so these databases are another way in which people are deprived of their liberty, are deprived of opportunities for employment, deprived of opportunities for accessing education and so forth. So we need to recognize the, 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 the breadth of the impact of this. It's not just that people are kept in their house as if that's not bad enough, but it has these implications for a, for a, for a surveillance state um, enhanced. And it's important to recognize that the impact of people who are in the criminalized sector of the population is very different than the impact of what I call the Snowden type of surveillance where people are getting emails and and phone calls snatched for some for no particular reason. There's no real impact on people. Maybe there will be one day. But and the people who are protesting against this for the most part are people who say we're innocent you should be surveilling these people over here but it's the people that are on monitors the people that are being the victims of stingrays and other kinds of, of, of state surveillance that pay the price of that surveillance with their with their liberty what does electronic monitoring and the fight against this set of technologies have to do with abolition what does electronic monitoring have to do with abolition a lot of people who are who have that perspective. I mean, we have that perspective, but a lot of people think, well, you know, this is a really technicist kind of thing, and it's really reformist kind of action. I think for a lot of people, when you talk about getting people off of electronic monitors or reducing the use of electronic monitors, it sounds like a very kind of technical kind of tweaking of the system. And for some people, it may be may even be seen as kind of like almost helping perpetuate the system by by fighting against the this technology, but not really getting at the root of the problem. But we actually see electronic monitoring 
as a futuristic vision on the part of the carceral state about how incarceration, mass criminalization can work in the future. There's the issue of, of the site and the cost of incarceration being shifted from state, state facilities into communities, into households. But there's also the kind of restructuring of urban space that's possible with the use of technology. And I, I, mean, I refer to this as e-gentrification. So, for example, if we look at the apartheid state, I mean, because I lived in South Africa in the 1990s, so I had some familiarity with the past books that black people were forced to carry, and police would post up on corners and stop people. And if their passbook was like a domestic passport, didn't have a permit that allowed them to be in that particular part of the city, they went to jail. Well, certainly with GPS-enabled phones and other kinds of GPS-enabled tracking devices, this is a very easy kind of form of population control to uh, our present-day urban situations. And already we see gentrification, which is enforced by a variety of ordinances and by a variety of policing practices. But this is a technology that can basically give everyone kind of a technological passbook, which says where you can go and, and, and where you can't go, when you can go there. All of these things can easily be programmed into a more advanced electronic monitoring device. One of the things I found was when I've interviewed youth and I've asked them where they think this technology will be in 10 years, almost without exception, they say, we're going to have computer chips implanted in us and they're going to be, you know, there's going to be this total control kind of situation. And I think we need to at least plug into their kind of view of the world in regards to this technology and think about if you were the CEO of the GEO group or Core Civic, what would you be looking to do in five or 10 years? And what are the cell phone or whatever communication devices we have in five or 10 years going to be able to do to help you complete your agenda? So there's a lot of big questions. I mean, we want to fight to get people off these devices. We want to fight for people to have freedom in their daily lives and not have their, their families and their communities be controlled by technology. But we also want to put that in the context of contesting the vision as to where is technology going and how is it going to impact particularly black and brown people, poor people in, the, in this country. Please check out the Center for Media Justice's website. When you get to our page, the Center for Media Justice, there's a tab called Challenging E-Carceration. And when you click on that, you will see our fact sheets. You will see the guidelines that James authored. You will see uh, case studies about how electronic monitoring is showing up in pretrial and parole, and then our contact information in case people would want to get involved. We are just had our first organizing call, and we plan to have a lot more. And so with more folks on those calls, we, we hope to find opportunities to do more of this work. So I just wanted to make sure we said that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. And thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. Thanks so much for the program. And it's I a guess- wonderful program. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to past episodes on our website at www.rustbellradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rustbell Abolition Radio Crew, A. Maria, Catalina Rios, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.